Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Happy New Year's Eve. Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab the stool. Today is the final day of our year-end Three Martini Lunch Awards, and we have saved the most prestigious for last. Jim, we've gone through 15 different categories, everything from rising political star to yesterday's edition where we pretty much savaged the mainstream media, and rightly so. Today we talk about person of the year, turncoat of the year, and we offer our fearless predictions for what it uh, promises to be a very eventful 2020. So, uh, Jim, lead us off. Your person of the year is? Sure. Uh, I'll give you who, uh, when, when Time came out with their person of the year, and it was little Greta, I'd said that actually you want to talk about the person who probably had the most unexpected 2019. Probably could be Ukrainian President Zelensky, who about one year this ago, this time he was a comedian, becomes president of Ukraine. Let's remember a president that's being invaded by the Russians, as we periodically forget. And oh, by the way, and then he ends up in the middle of the entire impeachment uh, drama. So he had a remarkable year. But what about like who the best person of the year, the, the person who I want to salute with that honor? Uh, it is Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I, I think the British elections were the clearest win for, for the conservative cause on the world stage so far this year. The conservative party in the UK is not 100% what I'd like to see. Uh, my colleague Kyle Smith made the argument that, look, the Conservative Party isn't really pushing for fiscal conservatism that much anymore. You're not seeing them push for spending cuts. In fact, there were a bunch of areas they wanted to increase spending, although there probably were ones that most conservatives would support, like law enforcement. Let's uh, let's observe that if he said, oh, conservatives aren't worried about spending anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around lately. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, look, this is, you know, on a variety of foreign policy, what it would have meant for Jeremy Corbyn to win um, the argument for Brexit, the argument of, of sovereignty and the idea that, look, as much as the, the European Union may have made sense as a trade pact at one point, but it had turned into this foreign power that was dictating uh, law, laws and, and rules for economic stuff that is simply was just beyond its original mandate. And the British people believe they could. Who makes the rules around here? Do we make the rules for ourselves or do these guys over in Brussels who are not from here make decisions for us? Um, Brexit appears like it's going to go forward. I know there's some people who aren't 100% comfortable with the, way, with the way it's being done but uh look for the argument that the people should decide and the consent of the governed is irreplaceable and that as much as people might like international institutions and agreements and all that kind of stuff that ultimately nothing can supersede uh a national government that's this was an important win uh and a step in the right direction and beside the guys a, the guys a hoot uh i love to love actually add uh, he's very funny, very witty, and uh, the UK appears to be in good hands for the foreseeable future. Yeah, he was my first choice as well, I must say, because if you look where he was at the beginning of the year, I think he was, uh, what, a disgruntled cabinet member for Theresa May. And uh, the more she tried to play both sides on Brexit, the more frustrated he got. He eventually resigned before she had no choice but to step down uh, after failing yet again to get a, a Brexit deal through that made nobody happy. He stepped up to the plate, easily won his party's uh, uh, vote to become the next prime minister. And then when uh, things pretty much turned into a stalemate in parliament, finally they got the new elections. And I don't think anybody expected the margins uh, that we saw. And so not only uh, is there a clearer path forward now uh, for Brexit, but it means the essentially the political 
end to Jeremy Corbyn, which is good not only for Great Britain, but as you explained when the vote was happening, Jim, uh, a Corbyn win would have been a devastating blow uh, to the United States and our relationship with Great Britain. And so the fact that that's been dodged as well is very, very good. Uh, also, that uh, people that crossed my mind, uh, I mentioned them yesterday, so I won't go into it in detail here, but the protesters in Hong Kong and Iran, anyone willing to really put their lives on the line for freedoms that they want to preserve or desperately want in the first place uh, are worthy of our admiration. Uh, My choice here as my backup to Boris Johnson is uh, going to be someone who's a little more controversial, but uh, I just like the way he does his job, and that's Attorney General Bill Barr. This is a guy who doesn't seem to get real nervous about the intense political winds that are blowing. Uh, He seems very competent, very confident, uh, and largely unflappable. Uh, he gave, a, I think, a pretty accurate uh, summation of the Mueller report. Some of the Mueller prosecutors didn't like it, so they uh, tried to correct the record. But in the end, he was right about what the Mueller report recommended, which was no prosecution. And uh, on the collusion front, was certainly exculpatory. Uh, there was also uh, the situation with him appointing the uh, U.S. Attorney John Durham to continue to look into how the FBI's investigation into the Trump campaign in 2016 began in the first place. And just his selection of Durham in and of itself uh, shows that he's uh, taking it seriously and, and not in a partisan hack kind of way. Depending on what Durham finds, of course, one side or the other will probably try to brand him that way. And then I believe it was uh, Trump trying to uh, get Barr to basically say his phone call was fine or, or some other decision he made related to that was fine. And Barr says, yeah, don't get, don't get me involved in that. I'm doing my job over here. Uh, you do your job. Uh, and uh, I think the Justice Department is in good hands. You got Eric Holder out there com- complaining that it's become politicized, which, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> of all the people that could make that complaint, Eric Holder is probably the worst person who could possibly do that. So, uh, Jim, uh, you never know what's going to happen day to day with the Trump administration, but I think you've got a pretty steady hand at justice. Yeah, actually, it's a really good selection. If I had to go with a backup, I probably would have gone with that. Uh, look, you know, Barr has gravitas that a lot of folks in this administration don't. He is a serious thinker. He is uh, he makes good arguments. Um, there's, you know, look, you know, a lot of people in this administration, most of the official media and folks who are uh, critical of, of the administration kind of dismiss them uh, as, as, you know, as a Barr is someone you cannot dismiss. And I think the president must be thrilled with the performance of Barr so far. All right, Jim, let's move on to turncoat of the year. All right. A lot of good you know, nominees here. Um, and I was kind of tempted to say John Bolton, Craig. Uh, but, you know, we haven't heard from the walrus yet. Uh, there, there's indications that John Bolton has a lot to say, that he found his time in Trump's cabinet extraordinarily frustrating. He felt the president was making bad decisions on North Korea and Russia and various other issues. Um, and he, you know, did not appear to leave on the best of terms, but we haven't heard the full story from John Bolton. So I kind of skipped over it. No, no, I think turncoat of the year. How about, uh, Tulsi Gabbard running for president as the Democrat for people who aren't that into Democrats. Um, <laughs> and you want to say, well, 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 yeah, what makes her a turncoat? You know, she's still in the democratic party, at least as of this recording time, you know, one of those debates, Tulsi Gabbard, in addition to you know, the joy of just watching her dismantle Kamala Harris, and expose her record as a prosecutor in ways that Harris was just completely unprepared for. It was the quote she said about after she got into that fight with Hillary Clinton. And she said that Hillary Clinton was, quote, the personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party, right? And the debate she said, you know, our Democratic Party is not the party that is of, by, and for the people. 
It is a party that has been and continues to be influenced by the foreign policy establishment in Washington, represented by Hillary Clinton and others' foreign policy by the military-industrial complex and other greedy corporate interests. Greg, by the way, if you have a Tulsi Gabbard bingo card, uh, that those two sentences probably gave you bingo. You know, with, with greedy corporate interests, military-industrial complex, Hillary Clinton influence, and uh, you know, establishment. Those four, those five. But, uh, you know, look, I, I think by the standards of the Democratic Party, she is a, you know, kind of refreshing. She's definitely very different. I don't like it when she starts sounding like Ron Paul. Um, but look, she is somebody who's not afraid to defy the rest of the party. And it's really kind of interesting because as much as Democrats are like, oh, oh my goodness, she's this, this lunatic, Assad lover. By the way, you notice Democrats didn't have that much of a problem with her and Assad back, you know, right after that meeting. Uh, you don't have to look that far back to find profiles of Tulsi Gabbard being the next, you know, the bright next rising star in the Democratic Party. Like two, three years ago, she was still a Democrat in good standing. So, kind of fascinating to see how quickly things can change. But uh, that's my pick for turncoat of the year. Oh, that's an excellent choice. Uh, it was even in the the last debate where they te- tried to tee up uh, Kamala Harris to to bash her. Uh, because they asked her about what she said about Hillary, and she said, basically, yeah, the D- Democratic Party is corrupt to the core, and it's got to change. Not usually the message that you throw out on the debate stage when you want to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. But, uh, hey, truth to power. Uh, doesn't mean she'd be a great president, but uh, she has said a lot of things that a lot of Democrats need to hear but clearly don't want to. So chances are not much is going to change there. And as you've pointed out, Jim, uh, as corrupt and incompetent as their management of the 2016 campaign uh, was, uh, 2020 has been at least that bad, if not worse. So uh, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, definitely a good choice there. Uh, I'm going to go with the NBA uh, as Mm. we go into our turncoats of the year. Quite literally in the category of treason. Good (laughs) choice there. And so this goes back to uh, early October. It's uh, just before the NBA season starts. And uh, the Lakers and some other teams are over in China doing exhibition. And China's a big market for the NBA. No surprise there. But the Hong Kong protests have been going on for months. So in early October... Daryl Morey, the general manager for the Houston Rockets, just retweets. He didn't say this himself, but he retweets it, so he probably agrees with it. Uh, Says, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Oh, my goodness. You've got every Chinese official basically telling the NBA, get on this, get this fixed if you even want to have a presence in this country anymore. The the reaction was apoplectic. Uh, the reaction in this country was apoplectic. James Harden was distancing himself from his own general manager. Other players uh, around the league were basically saying, I don't know if I agree with that one. Maury himself had to issue an apology. The commissioner, Adam Silver, uh, definitely wasn't happy with it, but actually did say he defends uh, the rights of uh, people in the NBA uh, to have the freedom of speech. And so now we get to the stars, the people who could actually fight back here and say, you know what? I understand that uh, we have to be a little bit sensitive in some ways because we're trying to uh, introduce our game to this massive market and we have merchandising and all this stuff. But guess what? Your human rights record is atrocious. You're denying freedom to people who rightly deserve it in Hong Kong. You run concentration camps to Uyghurs. You persecute Christians and burn down churches all the time. It's okay to call this out. But once the people with the biggest platforms had the chance to say something about it, no, no, no. Here's LeBron James, who uh, never hesitates to talk about Black Lives Matter and cops uh, uh, involved shootings and things like that about China. We all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech. But at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen um, when you're not thinking about others. You're only, you're only thinking about yourself. So um, I don't believe... Uh, 
I don't want to get into a, a word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl, um, with Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on on, on the situation at hand, and um, and he spoke, and uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, um, not only financially but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, so just be careful what we what we tweet and we say and what we do. Even though yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be. Um, a lot of negative that comes with that too. Actually, it turns out Daryl Morey is the only one in the NBA who was educated, it seems. But uh, that wasn't the worst. Here's Steve Kerr, head coach of the three-time world champion Golden State Warriors, offering a disgusting moral equivocation between China's human rights record and ours. Um, it has not come up in terms of people asking me about it, uh, people discussing it, um, nor has uh, our record of... Um, Human rights abuses come up either, you know, um, things that our country needs to look at and resolve. Um, that hasn't come up either. So none of us are perfect, and we all have uh, different issues that we have to get to. And saying that is my right as an American doesn't mean that I hate my country. It means I want to address things, right? But people in China didn't ask me about uh, you know, people owning AR-15s and mowing each other down in a mall. I wasn't asked that question. So we can play this game all we want and go all over the map. And, you know, there's this issue and that issue. And um, the world is a complex place and there's more gray than black and white. Jim, we could spend hours dissecting that disgusting pile of lies. I mean, the idea of equivocating a uh, mentally ill uh, shooter with government mowing down people and keeping them locked up in concentration camps is about as unfair and as uh, morally bankrupt as you can come up with. Yeah, I'm going up there with that. We're all perfect. A lot of gray areas. I mean, concentration camps, is that gray? (laughs) It's kind of a charcoal gray, isn't it? Like it's it, it's kind of gray you find in a black hole. Can't say I, I dispute that choice at all. In fact, maybe maybe it's even a better choice. Um, you know, look, we've always seen this in low level, in which you know certain publications or institutions would avoid being critical. This is the first time you ever saw like everybody lined up. Also, the moment of of uh, LeBron James talking about, hey, hey, think of how people could have been financially hurt by this, <laughs> while people are getting beaten in the streets in Hong Kong. That's. Uh, that's a special one right there. That one that one stands out of uh, statements during the year. And, uh, you know, I, did, did it hurt LeBron's reputation? Eh, some. I don't know. I, I don't know if it really caused a, a giant uh, change in his uh, reputation. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, he'll probably get more grief for, for declining performance uh, than he will for, you know, this comment, which was pretty reprehensible in terms of its unwillingness to call out what is unacceptable behavior on the part of the Chinese government. All right, Jim. Very good. Let's move on to our predictions of the year. But before we do that, let's review last year's predictions. Both of us did pretty well here. I think yours was more spot on than mine because mine was a fairly easy prediction. Uh, but I was my prediction was basically that nothing of consequence legislatively would happen this year that would require cooperation between a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. So Republicans will focus on confirmations. Democrats will focus on investigations. And if you were hoping that maybe they uh, could be some sort of bipartisan agreement uh, to stop your uh, premiums and deductibles from skyrocketing. Not going to happen. And Jim, uh, you focused on the 2020 campaign. We will begin the year with something in the neighborhood of 20 announced or all but announced Democrats running for president. By the end of 2019, 
um, more than half of them will have been kind of, you know, well, it'll be very clear that they're just in it for the book deal um, and who are and hoping for a cabinet post at some point. Now, let's try not to tear our rotator cuffs by patting ourselves on the back, but uh, those, those turned out to be pretty accurate. So uh, what is your fearless prediction for 2020? That's, that's both pretty good there. And I, like, the only thing I'd say is that maybe there's a trade deal that might uh, uh, dispute your prediction there, Greg. But that's, that's really, you know, nibbling around the edges for that. Um, so my prediction for you, look, I, you know, I, I'm going to go with a very basic, uh, predictable, pessimistic prediction. 2020 is going to be an ugly year. Uh, the, 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 you know, we always say, oh, this is the nastiest presidential election. This will be the nastiest presidential election. Uh, it will probably make 2016 look staid and boring and predictable by comparison. Um, but I think one of the things is going to make 2020 such an ugly year. It's something we saw in the impeachment, we saw throughout this year. I think the country never really stopped having the argument that it started in 2015. Should Donald Trump be president, right? This was going in throughout the Republican primaries, 2015, 2016. 2016, the country, you know, oh my goodness, can you believe this? The Republicans nominated this guy. Isn't this unthinkable? A lot of us felt like the mainstream media was touting Trump and airing his uh, his uh, speeches from, you know, live on, on whenever they happened because they wanted Republicans to nominate him because they thought he'd be so easy to beat. Surprise, surprise, he wasn't so easy to beat. Um, and we've seen the argument is Donald Trump, uh, is he fit for the job? Does he deserve the job? Is he, uh, is he presidential? Um, should he be in charge of the country? And that ultimately was what impeachment was about. And I think, you, you know, pretty much the moment it was clear that the Democrats won the House, it was pretty clear we were going to end up at this point. We're going to continue having that conversation. And the question will be to the country, well, what do you think? You know, does, has this guy earned the right to be in the, out of office for another four years? Or has this been a terrible mistake for the past four years? Listeners know there are a bunch of policies from Trump that I like. Uh, they also know there's a bunch of his his behavior in office that I don't like. I think he doesn't understand the job. I think he doesn't care about the constitutional limits on the job. I think he just wakes up every morning and does whatever he feels like, often spurred by whatever he saw on Fox and Friends that day, which is not the way. He doesn't handle his duties particularly well, from where I said. 2020, the election is going to bring a lesson, right? I can live with either set of election. If Donald Trump gets reelected, the lesson to Democrats is going to be, hey, you had a golden opportunity here, right? Trump's approval rating have rarely gotten out of the low 40s. Maybe on a good day, he hits mid 40s, right? There are a whole bunch of people who are in the Republican Party who don't like the way he tweets. They don't like the way he treats other people. He ridicules his own members of his uh, own members of his cabinet. He keeps going through people's uh, secretaries of defense, secretaries of state, chiefs of staff. He wants to be surrounded by yes men. He gets angry and frustrated whenever somebody tells him he can't. You know, there's a lot to beef there. And if the Democrats lose, it means they couldn't learn any of these lessons. Well, the old the old joke we've been said on the right for all they have to do is be normal, and they can't do it. At least not so far. We'll see what happens, you know, for a year from now. But my guess is Democrats may very well do a bad job of this. And in another sale, a, a turnout kind of like 2016, Democrats could head into this totally convinced they're going to win and they lose. And if they do lose, I hope they learn the right lessons. The lesson of a Trump is not, OK, go as far to the left as possible because you're going to have the wind at your back. If Trump is that maniac, you have an obligation to then go to the center that he abandoned. 
you have an obligation to hold up all of those those uh, so, those social mores, all of those rules, all of those traditions that he appears to be abandoning. Uh, if he seems to be ignoring the Constitution, you have an obligation to stand up and defend it, not to say, hey, let's get rid of the Electoral College. Hey, we're going to put more people on the Supreme Court. Hey, I'm going to use an executive order to ban guns. You no, know, <laughs> that doesn't fix Trump. That's just a different flavor of the same problem. I don't know if Democrats will learn this lesson in the coming year. I hope they do. I don't think they're going to do that. Uh, and if Trump loses, okay, that for people like me, it's like, all right, America, we gave the Trump approach a try. It worked in 2016. It did not work in 2020. And the reason is he was running against Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I assume whoever the Democrats nominate in 2020 will clear that high bar entitled be more likable than Hillary Clinton. <laughs> um, we'll see what happens. But if he does, then I think we could say, all right, there were certain parts of the Trump agenda that are probably worth keeping. I think it's safe to say the base of the Republican Party is not convinced of the benefits of free trade. I think it's safe to say uh, there are a whole bunch of Republicans who not only want the southern border clear, they not only want illegal immigrants from this country who are removed, particularly those who are violent and threats. They also want us to look more carefully at who's coming into this country. They want us to focus on assimilation. They want to make people that people who are coming here are interested in becoming Americans, full spectrum Americans, not just making money uh, and living in kind of a little enclave that replicates the culture from which they came. And that'd be worth keeping. That's worth having that conversation. But Trump is not, you know, Trump is not a great salesman for these ideas. Trump is a terrible salesman for a lot of these ideas. And we'll see what happens. Um, I can live with either set of lessons, but I would like the two parties to start learning them. Uh, because otherwise, I think the country is just going to be in a, a angrier and more divided state for the foreseeable future, Greg. Jim, yours is far deeper than mine. But yes, there are going to be some <laughs> uh, interesting lessons to learn no matter how 2020 shakes out. Just like we thought there were going to be lessons learned from 2016, and I'm not sure anybody's actually learned anything from it. So uh, the goal of learning lessons is always good. But when it comes to Washington, uh, usually the response to whatever the political results are uh, is simply, we need to do more of what I want to do. But uh, we'll see if that actually sparks any change, depending on the results. Uh, I believe, in my prediction, and this could end up being uh, debunked pretty early on in the year, that uh, we will get a Democratic nominee that right now doesn't seem likely. In other words, I'm Ooh. saying that I don't think it's going to be Joe Biden, and I don't think it's going to be Elizabeth Warren. I think if it's from the existing candidates, especially with the uh, recent uh, bumps I'm seeing right now, I think Bernie Sanders has a better chance at being this party's nominee, than, uh, even though it's not really his party, uh, than uh, we currently think. And I'm also not convinced that we've seen the last of the uh, entries into this race. It's not just uh, Bloomberg and the afterthought Deval Patrick who got in around Thanksgiving. I'm thinking we might still see one big name, and uh, it might be a former first lady, and it might not be the one who lost last time. Wow, that's a bold call there, Greg. I, like I said, I could be wrong pretty early in the year, but uh, no, I, I just feel like the Democrat. Right? It's going to be an ugly election year. Yeah, I'm really going on a limb for that one. <laughs> but uh, I just feel like, uh, and we talked about this, and that's why I think Bloomberg and Patrick are in the race, is that there's just this feeling that the current crop can't win, even though they think the wind ought to be at their back. And so Bloomberg's got massively high negatives, even though he's gotten to that 5-6%. He's going to have to get bigger than that, but uh, I mean, he's way over 50% with the negatives, and that's not going to be good for him. Uh, Patrick's might as well pack it in. I mean, nobody's paying attention to him at this point. Uh, exactly. And so uh, I think there's going to be an itching for somebody else. The more Biden can't 
you know, spit out a sentence just like I couldn't right there. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is clearly fading. And uh, if Bernie's the one with the big momentum heading into the actual votes, you're going to have a lot of Democrats who are really nervous. I, it's bold, but it's not a crazy prediction, Greg. Um, <laughs> I think considering the, uh, the state of dissatisfaction we've seen in the Democratic Party, Things could come to pass. Um, so what's, what's, is, it a, is it a Chinese bless or a blessing or a Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times? Yeah, it's turning into be a curse, that's for sure. But it does give us a lot of material for the three martini lunch. So It uh, does. So uh, it's been a good year, Greg, and I look forward to another one with you. Yes, absolutely. Happy New Year to you and your family. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Thank you for being with us all throughout the year. Uh, we can promise, we don't know exactly how, but 2020 will not be boring pretty much any day of the year going forward. So uh, heading into an election year, uh, do not miss the three martini lunch. We're very grateful for you being with us. And we will be off tomorrow for New Year's Day, but back on Thursday, January 2nd to start up the year with a full head of steam. So until then, party safely tonight and uh, we'll see you on Thursday.